0: Welcome to The Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi. Before we get into this episode with Dr. Mike Wessels, just a short disclaimer. While recording it a few weeks back, both Mike and I experienced some connection issues, Hence, at times, you may hear some interference. But given the subject we discussed and Dr. Mike's intimate understanding of it, I have no doubt you will forgive this minor discretion. Thank you for your understanding, and I hope you enjoy this insightful discussion. My guest today is Dr. Mike Wessels, who is a professor at Columbia University in the Program on Forced Migration and Health. He's a long-time psychosocial and child protection practitioner and a former co-chair of the Interagency Standing Committee's Task Force on Mental Health and Psychosocial Support in Emergency Settings. For those not aware, this is the body mandated by the United Nations to agree on priorities and responses to humanitarian crises across the globe. He was also a co-focal point and principal advisor on mental health and psychosocial support for the revision of the Sphere Humanitarian Standards. And again, for our listeners who may not have heard of the Sphere Standards, these are global standards that effectively set the benchmark for humanitarian intervention. Over the decades, Mike has conducted extensive research on the holistic impacts of war and political violence on children, and he is the author of the book, Child Soldiers, From Violence to Protection, which I recently read and is the subject we'll explore in great detail today. Currently, Mike is the lead researcher on interagency multi-country action research on strengthening community-based child protection mechanisms by enabling effective linkages with national child protection systems. He also regularly advises UN agencies, governments and donors on issues on child protection and psychosocial support, including in communities and schools. Throughout Africa and Asia, he helps to develop community-based, culturally grounded programs that assist people affected by armed conflict and natural disasters. Mike, it is a real pleasure to meet you and thank you for joining me.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here, Maz. Thanks for having me on.
0: Mike, there are so many questions to ask about the topic uh, of child soldiers. It is such a broad subject. But perhaps to get us uh, started or before we delve into those maybe murky waters, maybe I can start by asking what originally inspired your now decades-long commitment to the well-being of children in war?
1: Yeah, thanks, Maz. It was not exactly a uh, linear route. I would trace part of it to the fact that I was very much part of the Vietnam protest, the protest against the Vietnam War here, and I was very attentive uh, to the impact of that horrible war on uh, children, and it moved me uh, deeply. And um, when my own son was born in uh, 1982, I remember questioning myself about why it was that I was an academic by day and doing activism and trying to build a better world. Uh, basically in the off hours. And it set me thinking. A few years later, I was working in a uh, refugee camp for for Palestinians in Bakah, Jordan. And I had the opportunity to talk at length with a lot of adolescents. And um, they did a lot of educating, uh, even encouraging and pressuring me to uh, go back and to try to work to get a more equitable policy that would support Palestinian rights from the U.S. government. And these things really set me thinking. And then I would say the thing that really turned me, turned my life around and made me want to focus on supporting more affected children was an NGO that was uh, near my home. I live in central Virginia in the U.S. Uh, it was called Christian Children's Fund, now called Child Fund. And during the Angolan War, they were running a a very large uh, psychosocial support program for children. And when I went to Angola, I found a level of suffering Mm -hmm. intermixed at the same time with incredible resilience and the opportunity to learn, accompany, and uh, walk alongside of and support an all Angolan team that was working to support the war affected children. And they were taking a cultural approach that. Intermixed Western approaches with uh, Angolan approaches. And I realized how much of a multinational intercultural perspective was needed. And I think I learned in a small way, uh, that I could support local teams doing phenomenal work, uh, without myself trying to be the quote expert. And that, that really uh, lit my fire and, uh, and launched me on a journey of Of trying to learn in different countries, in different contexts, how children are affected by armed conflict, and uh, in particular, how uh, former child soldiers can continue their journey back into civilian lives. And uh, the more I've uh, engaged in that work, the more I've been inspired by young people themselves. And so uh, uh, here I am today, continuing that work, and hopefully uh, bringing forward some of their voices and experiences.
0: That's yeah, tr- truly inspiring work, uh, Mike. But may I just ask for a point of clarification just for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the terminology. What do we mean by psychosocial support or, or psychosocial uh, uh, requirements of children?
1: Well, uh, it refers to not just individual well-being, but individuals' well-being in relation to other people. The fundamental idea is that we don't Most people in the world do not define themselves as isolated individuals, but as members of a family, an extended family, community. And to be well is to have positive relationships, to be able to find meaning within those relationships, to have a positive sense about your culturally constructed identity, and uh, to have a role that enables Mm -hmm. you to help people who are important to you. And it This well-being has cognitive, that is, thought components, components of cognition, but of course it relates hugely to people's emotional and social well-being and also to their spiritual well-being. And I would underline the latter because I think spiritual well-being is a blind spot for many Western psychologists who tend not to believe in a spirit world or to regard it as uh, more in the province of religion than in the province of uh, psychology. But what we find in many countries is that spiritual well-being is right at the heart of cultural identity and at uh, making meaning amidst difficult circumstances. And uh, so it is a very holistic kind of approach that is required uh, to enable psychosocial well-being. And I would say it contrasts very sharply uh, with the narrow clinical approach That some humanitarian workers take when, for example, they're concerned primarily or in some cases only with post traumatic stress disorder or depression or some clinical malady.
0: Hmm. And and I think you bring up a very valid point there the impact of culture on our understanding of what's important in different cultural contexts. And and we'll definitely touch on that. The only other, I guess, key definition I want to touch on that perhaps opens up the avenue into the topic, is also that there appears to be a confusion on what we even mean by child soldiers. And you opened the book, uh, Wrestling With This Challenge. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure.
1: There has been a lot of confusion for multiple reasons and in multiple ways. To begin with, part of the confusion arises over the definition of a child. You know, in the West and under international law, We define a child in terms of uh, temporality, that is, age. So, a chronological definition is a child is a human being under the age of 18 years. But in many societies, for example, in Sub Saharan Africa and in many parts of Asia, uh, a young person who has been through a rite of cultural passage or who does the work of uh, adult women or adult men. Or who is sexually active is viewed therefore as an adult, and typically that might occur at age fifteen or even or even younger and uh so this is uh the definition of a child is culturally constructed, and not all cultures adhere to the uh, western definition which is enshrined in human rights to complicate it uh, matters further uh there was a uh, definition. child soldier for many years that referred basically to ex-combatants, a child, a person under 18 years of age who had been a member of an armed force or an armed group who carried a weapon and uh, who had been involved in hostilities. Uh, The problem with that definition is that we knew there were lots of other children who were with armed groups who did not perform fighting functions, or at least did not directly take part in hostilities, they might have been uh, women, for example. Young women often play the role of wife because they're uh, often taken by force by their captors. Uh, Sex slave might be a a more uh, appropriate uh, description of it, but they might also be cooks. They might be porters, but they may not be uh, involved in fighting. And to complicate it further, there are lots of young people who perform roles such as uh, carrying weapons, spies, being bodyguards. They are indirectly involved in hostilities, but they're not actually firing the weapons. And now under the Internet main international guidelines, the Paris Principles, all of these people whom I've described are uh, described as uh, uh, child soldiers. And so... If you're working, you're associated with in any capacity uh, with an armed group or an armed force, uh, then by definition, you are a child associated with armed forces or armed groups, which is the technical term for a child soldier. It has a long and unfortunate acronym. It's CAFAG. And so uh, I tend to prefer to speak of child soldiers,
0: uh, but it is important to define what one means. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, thank you for, for clarifying that point. Because even in, within myself, I've recognized that I've fallen for that trap. And while I haven't intimately studied the phenomenon of child soldiers, I've done some study of, of war and conflict. And I was somewhat ashamed that I hadn't delved into this rather important topic in greater detail. And it seems to me, or at least that's what came through the book, that it was also the change nature of war, as well as the, the change in weapon systems available that has greatly contributed to the recruitment of children uh you talk about uh, in the book how for example the AK47 or the kalashnikov open up a new door for the utility of children in war is that is that true
1: yeah it it's very true i mean in uh, sub-saharan africa as it's it's quite shocking you find that uh even in remote uh, villages uh, that there are AK-47s and other automatic weapons uh, available that can be operated by a ten-year-old, and a normal-sized ten or eleven-year-old can, with you know, a modicum of training and uh, pressure or even terrorism, can be uh, taught to be an efficient uh, fighting force. And the other thing is that the day's armed conflict is is definitely not fought on well-defined battlefields. I mean, as we've seen in you know the uh, wars of the former Yugoslavia, which you're so familiar with, with uh, the wars in Syria or uh, Yemen or uh, Sudan or uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and the list goes on and on. These are wars uh, that are fought in and around communities where one of the main strategies of armed groups is to terrorize uh, civilians and uh, to subject them to uh, direct artillery bombing and uh landmines and unexploded ordnance and to you know basically uh dominate them and uh and try to uh control them through through terror and what this means is that children are subjected to attack on a uh, very large scale uh large numbers significant numbers witness uh the death uh sometimes uh, the very brutal death through uh mutilation mm-hmm. and uh torture of their parents of their loved ones Large numbers of child soldiers, certainly not all, are uh, taken at gunpoint, and oftentimes they are handed a gun and told to kill a member of their own family or a member of their village. And that's a horrific tactic that's designed to break the bonds between the child and the community and to make it impossible for the child to escape. So, in short, the war comes in communities. It's not fought somewhere else. is weaponized. Many communities cannot be protected or are not protected by uh, the states of which they're a part. And so they themselves become, uh, take up arms. And uh, in this way, a lot of children get involved in armed conflict because they're fighting alongside of their fathers, their cousins, their brothers, and they may be fighting for the liberation of their, what they see as the liberation of their families from. Uh, a cause and otherwise that they do not uh, relate to. And uh, so under those circumstances, children take up arms through their own decision. They're not forced into it. There's a lot of debate about whether the decisions are voluntary. I've talked with children who tried to convince me that their actions were completely voluntary, and I respect that. And yet I found myself wondering, you know, living under these circumstances, for example, if you're a Ten-year-old child in Afghanistan, and you live in a place where you don't want to be under Taliban control, and your uh, father, your uncle, your brother, your whole family has militarized against uh, the Taliban and uh, taken up arms. Of course, it's easy to get drawn into that. It's what your family does. You want to help protect your family, your village, protect your the honor of your people and your identity and your religion, and. Uh, And yet those decisions are bounded by such severe uh, deprivation and and hardship um, that it becomes uh, painfully difficult to distinguish between voluntary and involuntary decisions. And uh, so I just think it's something that it's an area of great complexity that we need to keep our, our eye on and not fall into very easy decisions about whether something is voluntary or involuntary. I, the more I do this work, the more I see complexity other than any simplicity.
0: Yeah, of course. And and I think that echoes across war, across all of conflict as well. I mean, it, things are very rarely as they seem and certainly not as black and white as they often portrayed or presented in, in the media or even in some of our other broader social narratives uh, that we embrace. But one of the ones that stuck out with me again on your book was the the, the The lack of agency we tend to give children in war or child soldiers because we have a tendency to feel pity, perhaps rightly so, right, because these are minors who are having to experience some absolutely traumatic um, or see some traumatic uh, sights but also partake uh, and do some uh, horrendous acts, but as you rightly point out there are, there are some positive pull factors that provide an avenue out of poverty for some of these children. And, that, and in fact, it is it is the it is the environment that they live in that becomes almost the cause for them joining uh, an armed group, because the armed group is seen, rightly or wrongly, as a way out. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I do, broadly. I mean, I think you're exactly right. Uh, every armed conflict is a unique context. So it's very difficult to generalize about From one child soldier in one context to the next. But it is the case that in uh, many situations, uh, children uh, do decide, make their own decision uh, to join. I met a boy in Angola who joined at uh, six years old, uh, joined an armed group. And I asked him why. And he said, it was the only way I could get food. He said, I was going to die of starvation. And I talked with other children who Mm -hmm. needed, access to particular health supplies and the only way they could get it uh was through an armed group. I've talked with children in uh Colombia uh members of the uh, uh so-called FARC uh resistance against the uh, uh the government forces. And they said that they joined because uh, their families treated them very badly. One one child had an alcoholic father who beat his mother and a mother who wouldn't couldn't wouldn't or couldn't stand up to him. And uh so he began associating uh with some of the children who were uh young people who were members of FARC, and they became like a family to him, and so that became a big pull factor. Other children uh find that they can earn money. And for families that are starving, you know, this is a very big deal. Uh, they're not just doing it to, you know, buy things for themselves. They're they're talking about food and survival for their for families. And then, in some countries, I've met children who have always been invisible. They've always been treated like they're nobody. they're to be seen but not heard and uh the uh, they are infantilized by adults and not respected as having any agency as you said and uh sometimes they join because um when they get the uniform on, they are seen immediately as somebody they carry the weapon with power and they oftentimes uh, take great pride in driving in military convoys and, uh, you know, learning to operate weaponry and complex systems that gives them a sense of power uh, and accomplishment. And then uh, in groups such as Islamic State, which has, you know, of course, recruited large numbers of young people through madrasas um, that have been uh, religious, uh, not religious grounds for uh, recruitment, but politicized forms of religion. Oftentimes, the teaching is that, you know, if you sacrifice yourself for Allah, you will acquire, you will first of all become a martyr for your uh, cause, but you'll ascend to heaven and have a large number of um, uh, virgins who are at your service, and uh, you will be a hero um, Mm -hmm. for your people for all time. And These things are this glorification of child soldiering and the romance associated with it uh, hold a tremendous lure for people who have been nobodies, you know, they felt that they are nobodies and they live in very difficult circumstances, and uh, they feel drawn to a cause that's beyond themselves. And then if you're feeling that you are part of an oppressed people, as we've seen in Countries such as uh, Palestine, or in areas uh, you know, such as the uh, Tamil and Muslim areas of uh, Sri Lanka that had fought against the Sri Lankan government, they believed that they were fighting a uh, a war of liberation to achieve their cultural identity and their freedom, and to liberate themselves from the yoke of tyranny that had been uh, wrapped around their neck. And so, young people oftentimes joined and even um, became so-called terrorists, suicide bombers, precisely because they wanted to give their lives for a higher cause. And adults don't like to recognize this, but the young people often said that they found meaning and purpose in violence and uh, through giving their lives, their willingness to sacrifice their lives for the uh, freedom and liberation of of their people. So I think that adults have had We have had uh, way too simplistic a view of young people and their cognitive abilities, their desires, what gives them a sense of meaning uh, and purpose. And above all, as you said eloquently, we have infantilized them. We have not recognized their agency. Even though their cognitive and other capacities are uh, continuously evolving, even 10-year-olds have uh, really quite impressive uh, agency. And then you get a teenager who's maybe fifteen or sixteen, and oftentimes they're quite sophisticated cognitively. They can think through complex strategies, and uh, they can, uh, you know, uh, lead groups uh, into combat. One thing that is different, though, is that teenagers tend to have uh, a limited view of their own uh, mortality, and so they their brains are structured in such a way that they're a bit more impulsive. They have a heightened uh, willingness to take risks that most adults are unwilling to take, to make frontal assaults, for example, and so this uh, makes them exploitable by adult commanders who recognize this and who then throw them into situations that are horrific and unethical by uh, even by military standards. Frontal assaults on heavily fortified positions where uh, one can only expect that the death rate is going to be. You know, ninety-five to ninety-nine percent, and these are children who are being sent to their deaths to do jobs that the adults themselves are are unwilling uh, to do. So these are some of the things that have really uh, kept me up at night uh, with regard to this uh, very uh, difficult topic.
0: Especially because this is not this is not a small problem, right? This is not this is quite at scale, right?
1: Well first of all uh the as the uh the honest answer on this is we don't have accurate data and the reason why we don't have a good head count of the number of children in armed forces and armed groups is that the majority of recruiters want to keep their uh dastardly deeds uh private and hidden from view because otherwise they might be held mm-hmm. accountable uh or uh life might be made difficult for them so, for example, if you look at Joseph Coney from, you know, the so-called Lord's Resistance Army, who himself has even sired, you know, at one point he had a breeder camp going in uh, South Sudan, you know, he doesn't want people to know the exact numbers of those children. And particularly given some of the uh, cases that are now being heard by the International Criminal Court, there are a lot of recruiters of children who don't want to be convicted of war crimes and so they uh they again try to hide their other uh, recruitment of children. when I wrote that book uh the one of the figures that was frequently used was three hundred thousand children, and I backed off that a little bit to two hundred fifty thousand uh But the fact is, as I mentioned in the book, that we don't have exact figures, and the the same is true today, but it is done the practice is used on a scale. I'm happy to say that international Awareness and efforts such as your uh, good podcast, is helping, and I think it's making even more military commanders active on trying to convince you know people who are in control of uh non state forces and actors to to try to avoid uh, recruiting children but uh, it's safe to say that there are many tens of thousands we just don't at any point in time. We just don't know the exact number, but if you look around the world today, at you know from Syria to Sudan to you know DRC to any number of other other conflicts in the Central African Republic, things that are, are uh, perhaps more invisible—they don't get the media attention that others do. There are significant numbers of of young people, and this damages lives. It has very long-term effects. Damages families, it damages communities, it damages societies. I and mean, one of the worst things that can happen to a society is to uh, rob young people of having a childhood where they can learn positive values, good social relationships, normal um, uh, behavior, and can get an education and get hope for the future. You know, these are the things that enable young people to grow up and to be good contributing members of society. And, uh, not people who are going to get involved in crime or, uh, other armed conflicts and, uh, who are going to have trouble fitting in and who are going to have, you know, put a, a heavy burden, uh, on society and themselves carry a very heavy burden of suffering. And so this is why so many of us mm-hmm. tried to prevent child soldiering to begin with. And when prevention fails, We work very hard to achieve timely and appropriate release from armed forces and armed groups and uh, to enable the young people to reintegrate, to integrate into civilian life. And as you said, to redefine their identity and to find a place that's meaningful and to uh, take off that military identity and uh, mantle and hopefully come to terms with and find a way to live with all the things that they've experienced and the things that they may have done if they had actually been perpetrators.
0: Yeah, that's uh, absolutely the idea of of losing your childhood to some of these horrors. And you describe some of these horrors in quite some detail in your book through a lot of quotation from the young boys and girls that you've interviewed. And And I was actually speaking about some of those quotes uh, with my partner, Essen, who was a volunteer in the Buddha Burum camp in Ghana uh, some years back, uh, where she worked with child soldiers as well as uh, victims of gender based violence. This was after studying psychology to help them deal with some of their trauma and one of the greatest challenges she she brought up uh, that she faced was this very point that you just talked about now is the is dealing with the trauma not merely the physical trauma but the spiritual as well as the idea of shame of what they had done. Be that as uh, combatants or otherwise, or as porters, or uh, as sex slaves, the fact that they were part of this war, more often than not, against their own will, filled them with an incredible sense of shame. And this is certainly something that resonates through the pages of your book. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So, you know, particularly for girls, uh, girls are drawn into activity of inside armed forces and armed groups nearly as often as boys, in some cases even more because they may be targeted directly. And uh, they oftentimes bear fundamentally greater shame and uh, uh, dishonor and stigma. And so a Western psychologist who looks at a girl who's been a former child soldier and who uh, was raped and uh, who became pregnant and had a child Western psychologists looks at that and their training leads them to think, first of all, of post-traumatic stress disorder, which, of course, is a very serious psychological condition that definitely requires treatment. And uh, I might mention that it's very hard for many girls who've been involved in armed forces, armed groups to get appropriate treatment uh, because there aren't many psychologists or, or psychiatrists available in the countries uh, uh, where they work or they may have no money. But if you ask young people who've been in that position, what is their biggest problem in uh, in living? They'll often say it's stigma. They, they'll say things like, I can't eat off the same plate as other people. So in Sierra Leone, that's how the girls put it, uh, right next door to Ghana. And uh, you know the idea is that you're contaminated. You've been around dead <clears throat> death and uh, dead people. You may even have uh, killed people. And the belief is that you carry bad spirits and uh, no amount of psychological treatment or treatment of trauma will rid you of that. What's needed, at least according to the girls and according to many of the boys in different countries, is some kind of traditional healing, a ritual that involves washing away or cleansing uh, them of the spiritual impurities they had picked up by virtue of being around dead people and and killing. And maybe I could bring this to a head by <clears throat> talking about uh, a boy just for a moment in uh, Angola. The team I was working with at the time was focused entirely on, uh, not entirely, but mostly on uh, trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. And like I say, that that was very definitely a, a, a big problem. But there was a 14-year-old boy who uh, uh, presented himself, and he said his big problem was that he couldn't sleep at night. And so uh, the Angolan team asked him, why why is that? And he said, well, the spirit of the man I killed comes mm-hmm. to me at night and asks, why did you do this to me? And when we asked, mm-hmm. what did that mean to him? He explained that where he lived, to be well, meant that there was harmony between the ancestors and the living. And it was the ancestors who were all powerful and who controlled what happens in um, the world of the living. And his belief was that this uh, spirit of the man he had killed was haunting him. He was trapped, the spirit, and he couldn't make transition between the realm of the living and the realm of the ancestors. And the belief culturally was that that spirit was all powerful and could kill the boy and could also kill members of his family, could literally jump from him to other people. And so of course, members of his family and community were absolutely terrified of him. So this boy had a tremendous stigma that arose from a spiritual condition He also had a profound fear for his own life that didn't relate to the trauma per se, but to his spiritual belief system. And so here was an example of a boy who needed uh, some trauma healing and who needed some healing, some spiritual healing. And fortunately, he uh, put us, uh, we asked who could help him, and he uh, told us of the healers where he worked. And we actually went out and found healers from his uh, home province who were willing to uh, work with him. And uh, those healers were actually able to do rituals in which they called the entire community together. And the healer would demarcate a safe space using special herbs that were believed to keep out angry spirits. And the healer would uh, take the boy's shirt off and would then ritually wash him uh, with uh, soap and with herbs that were believed to expunge or to pull out the bad spirits. Uh, they would also fumigate the boy. They would put his head under a blanket and ask him to breathe the vapors being given off by special herbs that uh, were being uh, boiled. And again, those uh, the inhalation of these things was believed to expunge the bad spirits. Uh, The bad spirits, and uh, typically an offering is made uh, with the slaughter of a a goat, for example, which has considerable value amongst people who are uh, really quite hungry and may have only one meal a day. And at the end of the ceremony, uh, the the uh, healer asked the boy to step across the threshold of his hut and uh, out into the world, the civilian world. And as he did so, uh, the healer announced. This boy's life as a soldier has ended. He now is a civilian and he can do all the things that we do. And uh, there's no reason to fear him. And this kind of collectively uh, conducted ritual had an immediate benefit in terms and profound benefit in terms of social acceptance of the boy. It meant that the level of stigma, the spiritual stigma, was immediately reduced because people felt confident that the healer had faithfully conducted the appropriate ritual and that the boy was no longer haunted and by and carrying this angry spirit. And the same is true, if I could leap back now to Sierra Leone, the same was true of uh, many of the girls uh, in the northern province who experienced sexual violence and uh, who were around dead bodies they too believe that they had to be uh, purified by traditional means and so again ritual washing collectivized uh, process and then a uh, reentry back into the community mm-hmm. wherein the healer presented them as uh, pure and as able to eat off the same plate with other people the reason why this is so important is as i mentioned the girls themselves say Our big problem is that people won't talk with us. Uh, They keep their distance. They call us rebel girl, and uh, they make fun of us, and they even attack us. And uh, once this ritual is done, the level of social acceptance uh, goes way up. Their stigma goes down, and uh, things get get much better. It's not a one-stop shop treatment. They may still need some westernized uh, treatment for trauma. And most often, in order to fully integrate, they need to uh, be seen as good mothers. The vast majority of girls in armed groups in places like Sierra Leone uh, become became mothers uh, while they were inside the armed group. And um, they are judged by people on the basis of whether they're a good family member. So if they're out drinking at night and smoking weed and you know, uh engaging in aggressive behavior when they're uh, back in their community, communities will reject them, to hold them at arm's length, and they'll say, those girls are like animals. But if they go through the traditional cleansing ceremony, and if the community has worked with them and the family is accepting them, and above all, if the girls seem serious, if they are committed to their children and are working for their health and working to earn money, for example through doing petty business or maybe doing through doing agriculture and using that money not to drink or to buy fancy clothes but to send their children to school community members look at that and they say this girl has potential she is a good village member and uh, and we respect her so but this the stigma otherwise for girls when these things do not happen is absolutely huge First of all, they're blamed uh, for their pregnancy. They're blamed uh, unfairly for the uh, fact that they were raped by their captor. And uh, their children carry a double stigma. They are uh, born out of wedlock and they're rebel children. And so their um, the level of stigma is so great that this needs much more attention. The vast majority of the Mental health and psychosocial work that's done for these young people, unfortunately, is aimed more at individual healing, at alleviating symptoms of depression or of acting out or of um, having flashbacks and nightmares. That is quite important, but it is reducing stigma and aiding social acceptance that is even more important, or at least equally important. And that's what we don't have an adequate handle on. And I think part of the problem is that to gain, to enable this social acceptance and restore the relationship between individuals, families, and communities, you have to pay attention to cultural rights. And Western psychologists are skeptical of the cultural rights. They may view them as superstition as or as folklore. Or they may view them as, as harmful, and so they don't want to get involved. And the other thing is that to be a good family member and to be a good mother, you have to earn money. Many of the girls in Sierra Leone and uh, Kenya and uh, Angola and other places have told me, when I have cash in my cash box, that's when people respect me and see me as serious. And then you're a desired marriage partner, and really great things begin happening for you. And uh, so this takes you into the realm of economics. So again, psychologists don't feel qualified to speak to economics. And so I think a lot of important opportunities are missed. The key thing to do in reintegration work is perform a multidisciplinary team that intersects health, uh, psychology, economics, or livelihoods, and education. And uh, there may be others you want to bring in as well, according to the context, and then you got to work in a way that is culturally humble and where you admit that as a Westerner and an outsider, that you have preconceptions that may not apply in that context. And there may be cultural beliefs, identity, values, and resources such as healers and uh, rituals that are really important for reintegration. And you may have no idea what they are. And so it's really important to recognize the knowledge of local people and to not come in as the expert and to put yourself above them, um, but to learn with them and to adopt a stance of co-learning. So there are things that uh, local people can teach us about their cultural beliefs and practices, about what it means to be a well. A uh, child or young person in that context about how to reduce uh, stigma about how to reduce ongoing gender based violence that oftentimes confronts and afflicts girls who've uh, been formerly recruited, and so we need to learn from these things, and it may be true that we bring ideas to the table as well, but my strong advice is don't start with the outsider start with the local expertise. And then bring in outside ideas, not with a big bag of cash and not with the idea that we're going to impose it on local people, but to maybe ask people, do you see problems such as this in the young people? Maybe they act out and cause problems. Maybe they're very nervous and cannot sleep. Or maybe they even have uh, problems with criminality uh, and banditry. And Lots of times, local people will say, yes, we do see some individuals who have those problems. And then maybe share that, well, in some other countries, there are certain steps that have been taken, such as these, that were useful. And so maybe there's some potential usefulness in this context. And then local people think about it and then maybe take it on. But what I'm trying to suggest, mass is a leveling of the playing field so that it's not the outsiders who hold the power. The power comes within the local people themselves. It's part of their process and their agency of reweaving their cultural identity, their social fabric, their social networks, which have been disrupted by war, and to create their own meaning. This is how people heal. It's not all done by Western psychologists and psychiatrists, even though I do think we have something essential to offer. But a lot of it comes down to how we do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there are so many uh, amazing points you make making there, but one of them probably resonates most strongly with me is that, well, A, I find it fascinating that we are so naive to exclude the local population. But another point that really stands out is that everything you're talking about there about you know how we manage the experiences of these children and particularly you started talking with with you know gender-based violence uh, about victim shaming and which is which is which is something that's very present in our own quote-unquote advanced societies and I think everything you're saying there to try to help some of these children get a new start in life, also applies oftentimes in our own societies. Certainly, the Western economies are not immune, although we don't see it uh, at this scale and certainly not to this level of violence. But I think you've mentioned this in your book, uh, or it might have been actually somewhere else that I've uh, read some of your other work, where you look at uh, some of the gangs, and particularly you know both in your country and, and, and Australia as well, we have a huge problem with, with gangs, gang violence, which oftentimes... Are basically children as well. So the issues that we're facing in uh, some of these places across the globe that are experiencing real war and conflict, the lessons we, we we take there and learn there, we can also apply in our own backyards. And I find it fascinating that we that we that we don't do that. I agree. I agree, Maz. I
1: mean, I really in the U.S. I think part of the problem is American exceptionalism. You know, the idea that somehow we know better, we have better ideas. I mean, there's more than a little hubris and arrogance associated with that view. And I think it's really quite wrong. I think you're exactly right. We have all of those problems right here at home. In the US, there are large numbers of children who grow up in abject poverty, in uh, streets that are controlled by gangs, where it's so dangerous you cannot walk outside alone unless you carry a weapon, and even if you carry a weapon, you may be become a, a victim. And where children are recruited at very young ages to do things like become spotters to identify uh, when the police are coming, or to actually um, pass out drugs to become drug dealers on the idea that you know a child will be less likely to be noticed by police or, or detectives. And uh, sometimes children join gangs. Uh, because uh, they find a sense of meaning and identity. Or maybe their parents are abusing them or neglecting them. They may have parents who are uh, addicted to methamphetamine or uh, very serious narcotics and are incapable of taking care of them. And so they find their brothers and sisters in gangs, and that becomes a surrogate family. And out of their activities, uh, they acquire a new sense of meaning and purpose in life, even though horribly. It's not built around education and positive values, but around negative values such as you know, engaging in uh, drug trade and so on. But they do find the positive values of their surrogate families and taking care of each other. And so it's a matter of push and pull that lands them inside the armed group. And then after that has happened, the vast majority of uh, people who've been part of gangs will either be dead were in prison by the time they're 21. This is what the data say uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And what are they looking at lifelong? Will they ever be able to fit back in to a uh, civilian environment? Our society, as you know, has a, uh, an, a, the largest incarcerated population per capita of any in the world. And where people of color and uh, minority status are incarcerated at an incredible rate. And I think that these are not only massive rights violations, but they're situations that require us to be humble and to learn from what has been done in other countries so that we could enable people to, to escape this trap and uh, pre- uh, prevent their recruitment to begin with and uh, create positive pathways for the positive development of children and young people. And if they do get caught up in, in gangs and uh, even in land in prison, Find a way to help them transition out and uh, find a way back into meaningful lives. And there are lots of good examples of this. But I think that society is oftentimes stigmatized so badly. You know, in the U.S., to have a record of a a felony uh, is something that you can never erase. And it is really poisonous and toxic for your your record. And uh, so there are a lot of changes that need to be made in order to get in touch with the fact that No matter how horrendous the experience and the upbringing of young people has been, they're human beings who have rights. They're not a lost cause. The vast majority of children in armed groups and even in gangs can make a transition. And there's some wonderful examples of people who had been written off as a lost generation making a transition and actually becoming leaders in their own right. And actually trying to form peace between rival gangs or working with communities uh, to try to form uh, uh, more positive associations and youth groups so that uh, youth aren't drawn down the same pathways that these young people were, were drawn. And I think we need to respect their resilience and to support them by taking this kind of holistic uh, approach of working across individual, family, community and society uh, that I've been um, uh, describing.
0: Yeah, and I really do sincerely hope that people like yourself and the waves you're making are having the right impact. I'm very conscious of the time, but perhaps a a few final questions. And one that I wanted to ask in relation to the process of dehumanization. Your book talks about this extensively children, but basically exposed progressively uh, uh, to various levels of violence so that they themselves ultimately become perpetrators. Is that how that process works? Or, or, or perhaps I should say, can you describe that process to us?
1: Yes. So I I, I think it's complex. It happens in different ways in different places. But I uh, think that one of the uh, descriptions I was giving, uh, which is worth taking note of, was of the uh, so-called Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda, where the army of um, uh, Museveni, uh, the president of Uganda, was fighting uh, against the uh, Acholi forces, and it was um, there was uh, uh, a rogue group within that uh, so-called breakaway group called the the Lord's Resistance Army that was really horrific in what it did to children. So quite often they would go into a community, uh, shoot it up, take control, and they would call children to their side. They were then their captors. And they would force those children to kill someone from their own uh, village, or even their own family, to break the bonds, so that they wouldn't be able to go back. And then once they're inside the armed group, uh, the leader, Joseph Corney, knew very well that the young people were thinking about escape. And so what he did was he would set an example. Oftentimes, they were on long forced marches, Uh, with very little water or food, and uh, having to carry heavy loads. And the first time a child stumbled, they might let him try to get up. But if he didn't get up or if he complained, uh, they would make, you know, they would uh, uh, basically kill him. And then if a child tried to escape, uh, the method that was used was to have all the children form a circle around that child, and they would give each one a block of wood or a bat, uh, the equivalent of a big stick, that would inflict um, uh, serious wounds. And uh, they would have everyone beat that child uh, to death. And this was really horrific in part because everyone had to engage in the beating or they were next. They were told that and they knew it was true because they had seen it happen. So it's it's crafted to make it so that no child knows who dealt the death blow. This helps absolve uh, young people of their moral angst that they would ordinarily feel from killing another human being. It's also a progressive exposure to violence. You know, if you take an ordinary child and you uh, expose them to a beheading, uh, they will be profoundly upset and even become incapacitated and will cry and be fearful and upset and uh, terrorized. But if, over the on the other hand, if you tell them that there's an enemy and you make that enemy out to be savage, so savage that they want to kill your mother and father and you, and they want to do horrible things to you, they want to cut children up into little pieces. You know, these are the kinds of demonic images that armed groups and leaders often use and that leaders of countries use. The leaders of the U.S., I'm sorry to say, use this in regard to Japanese people, and they did it as a means of dehumanizing them precisely for the purpose of preparing people for killing. And so uh, to state it bluntly, it's very hard to kill someone whom you're picturing as a father or a mother. But picture that person not as a human being, but as a monkey, or as a subhuman lice, a vermin, or someone who's satanic who's a rapist and a killer, who's looking to come after your wife and your family, it becomes much easier to kill. And so these enemy images are implanted by a lot of leaders of armed forces and armed groups. And so, for example, among uh, Islamic State, this is one of the tactics, you know, portray others, the demonic other, as the infidel, who is involved in undermining Islamic values, who's exposing people to arrogance and greed and filth and uh, decadence. And the only way to correct it is to form a caliphate uh, that will become, you know, the, the home of a thousand years and will uh, honor Allah. And so there's a bit of ideology that's mixed in with that, uh, with that as well. But it's these things oftentimes combined with aggressive exposure to violence fear that you will be killed if you don't do them and with reward if you do them. So the Lord's Resistance Army also uh, gave, meted out uh, rewards in the form of uh, girls and drink and, you know, access to uh, safer quarters and to uh, even to commander's positions to the young people who showed bravery or who were uh, willing to kill uh, on the battlefield or even you know, within their own troop, when they, uh, within their own group, uh, when the orders uh, were given. And the evidence is that large numbers of people, we don't know exactly what a percentage is, but it's really quite, it's much higher than we'd like to believe. It's not like 10 or 20 percent. You know, it, it's uh, much far more likely to be like two-thirds or even three-quarters of uh, young people, given these horrific circumstances can learn to become quite brutal, and many can learn to become killers. And some can learn to become killers who do not blink an eye at uh, taking the life of other human beings uh, and who even have an ideology and a rationale that justifies it as uh, the right thing to do and is the thing that will bring their people liberation or will protect uh, their cultural identity from the savagery and the um, demonic practices of of the other.
0: I mean, it's a, it's really amazing to think the power of the environment, how how it can actually shape uh, our behaviors. And and you made a very interesting point about the military. And as somebody who was previously and is again now uh, in uniform, that resonates quite strongly about how we, uh, even through our training, dehumanize the other, whoever that other might be. Even through language that we use in you know, military doctrine or even in our, uh, in orders or, or even the, the tactical maneuvers to neutralize an enemy is such a such a blunt, cold you know word that doesn't really create an image. It's very surgical. It doesn't talk about annihilating, It doesn't talk about potentially uh, maiming or, or potentially even harming civilians or anything like that to clear an area uh, is again such a clean and efficient. Way to describe a military action and removes any idea of humanity that might be uh, standing in that spot, but what one question I want to ask is, is is and again, you've done hundreds of interviews with children, given what some of them go through and, and extent of the violence they're involved in, do they recover? Can they ever recover from these traumatic events?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it is uh the case that the vast majority can recover. Uh, and again, I'm reluctant to put a percentage on it, but I I mean I tend to think it's it's very high. It's you know, probably 90% or or more. Um humans have a capacity for resilience that is largely untapped, and that is much deeper than any of us had ever suspected. And psychology, Western psychology in particular has had a, such a strong deficits orientation that i think it's underplayed the importance of resilience and the positive capacities that people have particularly if their social environment transforms itself and becomes very supportive for enabling a young person to heal and to cope in positive ways and to be well and to come to terms with with uh, what they've what they've done and and to find meaning in life but I would say that um in many war zones the problem is local people remain highly fearful of the young people because these these are the folks who have been part of an armed group. And they say, we remember you very well. You came and raped and pillaged and plundered and you know killed our, our wives and children. And so there's a lot of fear of there maybe desire for a reprisal. So one of the things that psychologists need to think about and that everyone interested in thinking about healing needs to think about, is justice. And I'm not thinking about retributive justice or an eye for an eye, but rather restorative justice. And the fact is, a lot of children are seen as having done harm to people, and they need to give something back to the community before the community can accept them. So, for example, in Sierra Leone, the full array of things that I've described the, you know, uh, education, the destigmatizing, the traditional healing, the participation in, you know, through uh, culturally constructed rituals. It may not be enough if local people still fear the young person or believe that they uh, need to give something back. So there are culturally constructed processes that can enable restorative justice. In one case, there was a boy who, uh, uh, his parents were very worried about him, and they wanted him to be able to integrate back. so the parents went to the Paramount chief, who is uh, viewed as the keeper of the land and the highest authority, even higher than the president of the country and uh, They asked whether he would uh consider having an audience with their with their son and so finally the uh, the chief agreed, and uh when the boy entered his chambers. Uh, the boy laid face down on the floor, prostrate, and um, prostrate and hit, uh, reached his arm out and held his extended arm out and held the chief's ankle. It was a gesture of extreme uh, humility and subjugation. And uh, the chief then asked him to tell him everything that had happened and that he had done. And uh, the chief had no doubt been listening to other sources and sort of knew what the young boy had done, but he was listening for whether the boy was going to tell the truth and show remorse. And uh, the boy described in detail what he had done and he did show uh, remorse. And so uh, the chief basically said, you have harmed our people. Uh, You need to apologize and uh, to do it with sincerity. And so The whole village was called together and the chief announced that the boy had shown remorse and had told everything that he had done and had done this in a culturally appropriate way. And he was here to speak to the people and the boy apologized and his nonverbals were of great humility. And he hung his head in shame and said he had never should never have done those those bad things and that he, you know, We'll have a hard time living with those things, but that he would you know, do his best to work hard and to give something back to the people and to be a good community member. And uh, the chief encouraged people to accept that. And so the people were willing to go along with that. And at the same time, chief, the chief assigned them to what you and I might consider community service. So literally giving something back. And so... Uh, if there were buildings that had been damaged by the war, he might be involved in work crews to rebuild the buildings, or if crops had been damaged, he might be out brushing the land or uh tilling the crops to, you know to help improve the agricultural uh yield and uh People saw this, and they saw him giving back and During that time period, he was also under the tutelage, the moral tutelage of an elder who was viewed as very good at working with young people and helping them reflect on their values and their responsibilities as citizens and as a community member. And uh, over time, uh, this boy really became well accepted and uh, integrated quite uh, effectively. On the other hand, I have seen a very small minority of people who had ongoing problems. So uh, one boy in Angola had great difficulty because he said he had acquired a a taste for killing and that he enjoyed the thrill of it and he even enjoyed the smell of the blood. And he said that uh, even though he had been in a reintegration program, he wasn't sure that he could stick with it, because when his mother did things like cook a big pot of red beans, it would evoke images of the blood flowing and it would ignite an irrational fury and desire for him to go uh kill again so there's a lot that we don't understand i mean to be quite honest psychiatrists and psychologists have learned a lot but there's an awful lot that we don't know and uh brain science hasn't uh is still a fairly young science and so we don't know whether there are long-term changes in brains that occur from killing at an early age but we are finding That exposure to extreme forms of violence, even as a victim, much less a perpetrator, at a young age, can have epigenetic effects that basically activate particular genes that then promulgate certain kinds of reactions and patterns psychologically, lifelong. And something like that may turn out to be the case in some former child soldiers. We don't know. So... uh, I'm gonna leave that open as a a source of complexity and maybe among some of the listeners, there'll be people who want to devote their lives towards addressing some of these complexities and and can make a contribution in that regard. But I would reiterate that the vast majority of them are able to heal, they are able to reintegrate and they're able to construct meaningful lives um, as good family members, good community members, and um in ways that uh provide themselves and their families with hope and meaning and well-being
0: yeah that's really reassuring to hear and i echo the challenge to uh to our listeners if uh, to dedicate their lives on on understanding the the i guess the genetic components of uh the impact uh but it's also amazing to hear the power of the community and how the community can help reintegrate and again that's perhaps a lesson uh, that we can take into our own backyards, into our own nations, rather than locking some of these minors away for life and throwing away the key. And again, I'm really grateful for your time, Mike, uh if I can just squeeze out a little bit more of you. If you could change just one thing, you know, whether it be a policy or decision making process or or even how a global body carries out its work, uh, that would help alleviate the problem of child soldiering, what would that be?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a really important question. For me it would be A change in the way adult policymakers work and also the way in which adult practitioners like myself work. It would be uh, oriented towards listening to the voices of the children themselves, not as victims or passive objects, but as living human beings whose lived experience has given them a depth of knowledge, um, even if it's horrific in some cases. Uh, that we need to understand through their eyes. I mean, in short, we continue to keep missing the ball by imposing adult preconceptions, which don't match the the lived experiences of children. We may not understand the cultural meanings and context of what they've been through. We may not understand what it means for a girl to have been uh, raped and sexually violated. Um, and so we really need to understand through their eyes what's important. And along with that, it's not enough just to give voice and to uh, listen. We have to also recognize that young people are agents and their agency is part of their healing process. Healing occurs in part when we reassert our sense of self-efficacy and control over events in life, even on a small or a limited scale. and. Young People's Agency is profoundly important for that, but also because they know what their priorities are and what would enable them to integrate in the most effective manner. And so for a long time, former girl soldiers were, uh, economics was viewed as important. And so they were taught as a means of livelihood to become seamstresses or to take up Economic activities that were viewed as traditionally important for women. the girls who've been commanders and who've given life and death orders, they don't want any part of that. And they say, you know, I am someone who's decisive, who can size up complex situations. I can speak on my feet. And uh, I don't want to go through a reintegration program that's going to make me a demure seamstress. That's not me. So we need to listen to young people, and we need to create space for them to help create some of their own self-guided activities, uh, wherein they work with members of their families and communities, and they make the decisions about how reintegration programming uh, will occur. And on the prevention side, if we can listen more to young people and listen better, we'll find out that Young people who parents or community members think are doing okay, they may be in school, but they may be thinking about suicide. They may have suicidal ideation or intent, and they may be miserable living in the families that are neglecting them or that are making them feel inferior Mm -hmm. in some way or not meeting their needs. And it's when we listen to uh, the, Mm -hmm. the lived experiences of young people, when we respect. Their capacities for change, and work alongside with them, so that we're not burdening them with healing, uh, but uh, really trying to, you know, work with them to build a better future. Then I think we get farther. My question would be: Are we willing to listen?
0: Wonderful. May I ask you one last question? And it, and it pertains to you. You've had hundreds of interviews with child soldiers. You know, on one hand, this was hugely useful data in support of this exceptionally important topic but on the other hand you were interviewing children who have experienced grave abuses of their innocence and undoubtedly this must have also had uh, uh, an impact on you. How have you dealt with it or how do you deal with wrestling with such challenging traumas?
1: It's a great question mass I dealt with it personally uh, by first of all, taking, uh, time out for myself, uh, when I thought I needed it. I'm not always as good about that as I should be. Mm-hmm. But, uh, even, uh, while I was, you know, in places like, you know, Sierra Leone or, uh, Angola or, uh, other, other war zones, taking time to cry and to grieve and, um, you know, recognize that, you know, you're carrying this stuff around. And you can't just act like you're impervious to it or you're, quote, strong enough to contain it. You're not. And um, it comes back to get you. So working on it uh, and processing, I would say, is really important. Uh, Writing is often often very important for me and uh, helps give a chance to work through. But I would say the most important things for me are being able to talk with uh, my wife, Kathleen, who uh, I share this work with, Kathleen Costelni, and uh, we're able to talk these things through, and that, that means more than I can um, can say. And then nature, being in nature, and uh, being able to do special rituals in nature, and to be able to uh, uh, relieve myself of uh, certain anxieties and to own the pain but to find a way to work through it and to channel it into something meaningful so that I'm not afraid of it and so that it ultimately has mm-hmm. some larger purpose. Those those things have helped. So I think it's relationships, spirituality and, and nature and uh, being conscious and intentional about creating space for, for grieving. And it's an important question, Maz, because the Humanitarian workers, as a whole are asked to endure these horrible things, and oftentimes agencies and even individuals are not oriented towards self-care and It is a very slippery slope. it can lead to substance abuse to making bad judgments uh you know with the former um, children, child soldiers you know it can lead to long term psychological uh, dysfunctionality. So these are things that really need to be taken seriously by everyone working for the, uh, for and with the children. And I'm happy to say that the children have taught me a lot about how to cope and about how to find a resilient pathway forward.
0: Mike, you are truly an admirable human being. And, and I know we've pushed slightly past your heart stop here. So I, I'm very appreciative of the time you've given me today. And I want to thank you for all the work you do because this is exceptionally important work and it's the book's been out for some time, but I think it's as relevant now as it has been 15 years ago when it published, uh, and I really do invite my listeners to take a read. Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope to speak to you again in the future.
1: Thanks, Maz. It's been a great pleasure talking with you, and uh, I hope this is uh, useful for all your listeners. Please keep up your good work.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.